Hey, men. Welcome to the FaithBridge Men podcast. I'm your host, Mace Perez. FaithBridge Men exists to transform men's lives through the power of the gospel, to develop a band of brothers, and to inspire, encourage, and equip men to live lives of eternal significance. We know that real men like you are wrestling with real questions that have profound implications for our lives. So we want to tackle those questions head on this summer in our Summer FAQs podcast series. In this episode, we're answering the question that I have perhaps been most looking forward to. Why should we trust the Bible? The reason I have been looking forward to this episode is because as a former agnostic and skeptic, this is one of the main questions that kept me personally from the Christian faith for many years. And I'm even more excited because of who is joining us today to help us address this question, Scott Pollock. Many of you will already be familiar with him because of the awesome sermons he's preached at FaithBridge several weeks back as part of our Life of Jesus series through the Gospel of Luke. And if you have heard him speak before, you know that he is a man who takes biblical research very seriously, so you know that we are in for a real treat today. Scott, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Mace. Appreciate it. So to start, uh, just catch us up a little bit on what's been going on in your life, your family's life, that sort of thing. Yeah, well... um... I've been married for almost 22 years uh, to my best friend, and uh, her name's Liza. And then we have two kids. Uh, one of them, uh, my oldest son is 18. He just graduated high school. And um, my daughter will be a senior in high school. They're very close together. She's almost 17. And so, yeah, we're in the thick of that, um, just trying to figure out, um, help our kids figure out what where God is leading them next and how they are... Uh, um, how they're called to to uh, follow him and life and all of that fun stuff. So yeah, and then um, just following God in my in my career and in Liza's career, of course, continuing and her continuing um, health uh, struggles, which has mm-hmm. um, has been the last um, eight years or so of our life. So um, that's a significant part of our life still, and um, some of the ways that God communicates his goodness to us in, in um, beautiful, unexpected ways. So, yeah, lots of things happening, and um, it's a new season for us in many ways, but um, we get to see uh, new new things that, that God's showing us all the time. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thanks, thanks for those updates. I'm sure you could go into much more depth on each sure. one of those. Yeah, yeah, and, sure. uh, you know, one of the things that we have really enjoyed doing with this uh, podcast platform is highlighting stories of men. That Those have been some of the episodes that men have found the most powerful. Oh, wow. So yeah. uh, maybe we'll have to have you back to, to be able to talk a little sure, bit more about <clears throat> uh, what the Lord has taught you through each of those things. Uh, but for today, for today, we're here, we're part of this FAQ's podcast series, and the question we want to address is why should we trust the Bible? And uh, that's a pretty big topic, and I'm sure we'll go lots of different routes, but I'll just kind of keep it broad, and we'll let the conversation flow. So Scott, why should we trust the Bible? I, I just think it's such an important and foundational question, first of all, and I want to respect want to respect anyone who asks that, even if they're a believer in Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, or like you formerly were, right, an agnostic, atheist, um, even an, an antagonist to Christians or Jesus. The, the answer, oh, excuse me, the question deserves respect because it is an important question. And... The th- top three reasons why most people ask that question, if they're asking it from a sincere place, is 
um, one, the, the Bible was written so long ago, it's, it's ancient, and it was written by uh, fallible men. It was just written by humans, right? Um, second is it has to have been corrupted. It's been changed over the years and whatever and whatever. And three, it was it was selected. You know, I mean, we're, we're talking about books of the Bible, so, so the people will say or think. We're talking about books of the Bible that were chosen out of many other books, kind of like you would choose your best friends in a kickball game in kindergarten or something, right? I want him to be on for this reason. And a lot of those are misunderstandings and misconceptions, but those are typically the the top three reasons why people ask that question or doubt. And and so I think in our time together, I'd really like to look into um, reasons why we can trust the Bible. Um, and <clears throat> some of those are objective and some of those are subjective. And so what I... What I think most people want to jump to is the subjective things, and such as, uh, well, the Bible's changed my life, and that's a good that's a good piece of evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not to be discounted, but that doesn't necessarily transfer to my neighbor, who is doubting, maybe as a scientist or a historian or right. whatever. Right? Um, if I tell them, well, the Bible's changed my life, and that's why I trust it, that doesn't necessarily mean a lot, or doesn't have to mean a lot to him. So the subjective things, the way I hear the voice of God in the scriptures, um, are are important. But let, let's save those for a second. Let's just m- move those to the side. And let's talk about some of the objective reasons why we can trust the Bible. <clears throat> and those are, some of those are in hard sciences. Um, for instance, I, 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 one of the reasons why I trust the Bible um, um, it, it may be near the top of the list, actually, for me, is that, what, and this is the way that I explain it to people, I explain that the, the um, upper story of the Scriptures, what we see in the Scriptures, Old and New Testament, matches the low, perfectly matches the lower story of what we see in hard sciences, such as history, um, archaeology, <clears throat> even paleontology, biology, chemistry, whatever, cosmology. When we see that there were... Sorry to interrupt. So just real quick, for someone who's not familiar with that terminology of upper story, lower story, Mm -hmm. what do you mean by that? That's what I was going to explain. Oh, Uh, sorry. No, you're good. I should just let you go. (laughs) It's perfect. No, fine. So when we we read in Genesis um, that there was a garden um, between um, four rivers, right? Um, two of those rivers uh, don't exist anymore, but two of them do, the Tigris and the Euphrates. And we're mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, those, those rivers are actually still here, and they're in the part of the world that we, um, we understand, right? And so, well, somebody could say, well, yeah, but that was written later, and so maybe that's back. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll push that aside for a second as well. Meaning but, a, a later author interpolated Yeah, exactly. That, you know, we're, we're writing back. We're writing about things that already happened or, or and, and we're contextualizing to the time. So there's some, maybe some uh, sketchiness happening in some of these things. But let's take uh, Jericho, for instance, right? So in the book of Joshua, when um, they cross the Jordan River and officially enter into the promised land, and they walk around Jericho and the walls come a-tumbling down, right? And so um, we should be able to find in archaeology in that 
vicinity, um, the city of Jericho. And, and we did. Um, so for, for hundreds of years, recent, the most recent hundreds of years, um, lots of people were looking for that. Not, not thousands and thousands of people, but biblical archaeologists were looking for that. And I can't remember the date, but it was, um, it was around the time of World War II. They, they, uh, they discovered uh, a walled city um, down the slopes of the Judean mountains from the modern city of Jericho, which is up the slopes a little bit away from the Jordan River, they found um, plentiful archaeological um, finds and discoveries of a very, very ancient, dated to the time that the Bible suggests, of a walled city. Um, And so it, it corroborates. So what I mean, the upper story of the scriptures, what we see in the scriptures, if if something uh, is said to happen here, um, we should be able to find that in the lower story of sciences. Conversely, I would just suggest as a as an example, in the Book of Mormon, um, there are tons of Mormons who are very interested in finding any evidence at all in the New England area of upstate New York of massive battles that were said to have happened in the Book of Mormon. And to my understanding, to date, they haven't found any evidence of right. that. And so w- what I mean is the, the upper story of these, of these ancient religious texts, when they match the lower story of what we see in the earth, that is something objective that tends to lend towards their reliability. And I think we underestimate that. Um, the the second thing about objective can I can yeah, I interject course, just one, one sure. thought um, because I think it ties back to what you said earlier of the subjective part of it of the Bible has changed my life it's not unimportant no but that's not the most foundational thing because as you were sharing that my mind went to I'm sure we could find the Muslim who is would say that the teaching of the yeah, Quran absolutely. has changed their exactly life. right. We could find the Mormon, and in fact, anyone who's had an extended dialogue with a Mormon knows that eventually, as we are dialoguing with them, their kind of fallback is always going to be, well, I experienced this burning bosom in my chest. There you go. And I had this subjective experience that testifies to to what's true. And so that's why it's important to not hang all of our hats on the subjective element, not that it's invalid or untrue. Correct. But because um, that objective piece, we can hang our hat on that, whereas maybe some of these other uh, faith systems, once you actually do some of that research, you find that uh, it's, it's very uh, slippery sand that they're standing on. Yeah, well said. Well said. Very true. Yeah, I don't want to discount the subjective. I just said, let's push that aside for a second right, right. and talk first about objective. So we'll, we'll come back to that because I think it is important. And I, uh, if when I'm... Sh- when I'm conversing with um, non-believers or, or people who are struggling or, or sincerely asking a question that they want an answer to, which is not everybody, right? right? I mean, some people just ask these questions because they, especially online or whatever in, in chat rooms or blog posts or whatever, they, they just want to pick a fight. They want to um, use up some of the uh, argumentation bullets in their gun that they've learned for wherever. And... Uh, but but in a sincere conversation, uh, what I tend to do is start with the objective and then conclude with the subjective, and that tends to be a right. in in my experience a more uh, 
um, more convincing or um, uh, at least a more relatable combination in flow. Right. So the, the second thing in objective is I would say, um, what, how would I phrase this? The, the textual history that we have of Old and New Testament is something that um, a lot of people don't know and, and, and some others misunderstand. Like I, in preparation for our podcast, I was reading a, a blog post of a guy who was dismantling or, or trying to dismantle the, the um, extraordinary truth of the number of ancient manuscripts that we have of the New Testament in particular, not, not even of the Old Testament. But um, in comparison to something like Homer's, the Odyssey or the Iliad, which is roughly the same age as the New Testament, um, is on the order of, and I've, 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 I've not <laughs> examined these uh, manuscripts, of course, but um, on the order of a, a few hundred um, that I've seen in, in, um, in, in, a, in a number fashion, like we have this many hundred copies, ancient manuscript copies of Homer's Iliad or Odyssey or whatever, um, up to uh, 2,000 is the largest number I've seen. I don't, I don't know. So well, let's just go with 2,000. Um, largest number of um, either partial or full copies of, we'll just go with the Iliad, um, of Homer's Iliad. Well, um, with the New Testament, um, which is, I, I, I would, let's say roughly the same size as the Iliad. Iliad's pretty long. I, I don't know what word count is, but let's say roughly the same size. Um, we have um, almost 6,000, 5,800 current count, 5,800 Greek manuscripts, which are the oldest. Those are partial. Some of them as is, is small as a couple of lines, but most of them are full books or full copies of the canon of the New Testament. Um, in addition to that, we have 10,000, over 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and then we have another 6,000 um, uh, manuscripts in other languages. Now, um, as you move into Latin and other languages, they tend to be a little younger, meaning that they're closer to our time than the original um, ones. Um, but that is exceptionally rare when it comes to ancient manuscripts or ancient literature. There is nothing even close to the amount of corroborating manuscript textual history and evidence that we have um, for the New Testament. There's, there's nothing that even approaches it in the history of literature. This is an objective scientific fact. Um, now, the next thing people will say is, yeah, but there's lots of differences. And it is true. There are lots of differences in those manuscripts. But one of, one of my um, sort of little hobbies that I discovered in when I was in seminary is um, textual criticism is something that I really, really enjoyed. And textual criticism is the science of trying to understand the differences in those New Testament manuscripts. And what I've discovered in, in my study and under great professors who've, who've done that, like Dan Wallace and others who are experts in many ways, um, is that most of those, and there are thousands of differences, um, but a vast majority of those differences are as simple as word order or deletion. So I'll give you an example. And this, is, this example is multiplied hundreds of times in the differences of New Testament manuscripts. When one text will say, Jesus Christ, the other text would say, Christ Jesus, or simply Jesus. Now, that is uh, a difference. 
Um, some would say an error, and we want to record those errors. And we have um, logged all of those errors very painstakingly over hundreds and hundreds of years of biblical scholarship. And uh, we want to understand those. But when we look at it um, carefully, we understand, one, a difference like that, again, which is it happens hundreds of times, um, does not affect the meaning of right. the sentence or the text at all, doesn't affect any theology at all. Um, and the vast majority of the differences that we have in biblical manuscripts are of that nature. Um, simple omission of a word, change of word order, things like that. There are really only three or four differences in New Testament manuscripts text that extend beyond a few words, okay? Um, there is uh, one in 1 John um, chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. There's one in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34, 35. The, the two longer ones that most people think about is the ending of Mark. There is a, a long ending of Mark and a short ending of Mark, um, and even a, a third little bit on the end of Mark. Um, most people understand that as a later edition, and they treat it as such. The most popular one is probably... Um, the most popular two are probably in the Gospel of John, John chapter 5, Verses 2 and 3, I think, if I recall correctly, um, seem to be added a little later because they're not in our original manuscripts. And even if we deleted those, we lose nothing. It's just explaining. It's probably a later scribe explaining something that uh, seems to be odd in, in John chapter 5, verse 1. Um, and um, then we have the what, what is called the pericope adultery, the... Um, the story of the woman caught in adultery in the end of John, John 7, 53 through 8, 11. Um, it's where Jesus stoops down on the ground and writes uh, on the on the ground. Um, and, you know, he who is without sin casts the first stone against this woman. That that story, if we lose it, we lose, we lose nothing of the whole story of Jesus. But um, that story is a, is a question. It appears in different places in the Gospel of John. There's a couple of manuscripts that even have it in the Gospel of Luke. And so it's, it seems to be an ancient story that is looking for a home, um, probably in good tradition. But if we lose that, if we lose those two verses in John 5 and those other couple of verses, we, and those are the, the most controversial ones, we lose absolutely nothing. Right. No central theology, no, no central Christology about who Jesus is, nothing at all we lose. Um, and that is pretty much the whole of the textual differences that we see in the New Testament. So we have not only an, an, a fantastically, I would say miraculous number of actual manuscripts, what we have also is a, is a miraculous level of agreement. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to the history of literature, nothing is like it. Um, and non-Christian, literature and literary scholars will say that and do say that all over the... And they have said that for, for thousands of years, um, that this is unique. And so we have this, I think, is, is the hand of God preserving his inspired and inerrant word in the original autographs. The original versions, I think, were without error. Um, but copying those things, again, this is long before the printing press, copying those things did introduce errors. Um, but those errors are such a um, minor nature that we have objective reasons to really be able to trust 
the Bible in significant ways. Yeah, the, there's a lot of really good stuff there. Um, I think, if nothing else, what I would want to address is, um, you know, the way we often hear it from the skeptic. In fact, I was just watching a debate between a Christian and non-Christian the other day, and he kept using this line over and over again, that they use this analogy of the telephone game, right? That we uh, played when yeah. we were kids, right? Of you, course. Know, you all sit in a circle and, you know, the the leader, you know, comes up with a little phrase or sentence and and you go to, you know, each other's mm-hmm. ears and you pass it around. And by the time it's done, it it's nothing like Correct. with the original phrase, right? And so um, the average just person out there in the world, I think that that's the way that they think yep. that as we hold our Bible, that's how we got the Bible. It's <clears> like, how can we possibly trust the Bible when... We don't have the original autographs, and so all we have are copies of copies of copies of translations, and there's this, usually this added component that that they claim or they think it's, okay, yeah, it was written in Greek, but then, like you said, it was translated to Latin, so we're we're not only dealing with copies of copies of copies, we're, doing, we're dealing with translations of translations of translations, um, and I think you and I would both agree that that, that analogy get some pretty significant things incorrect with what we yeah, actually there, have. Yeah, there's some rules to the telephone game. If we're playing the telephone game now, one of the rules is the original speaker says it once to one person, and the person can't ask a question. Like, that's how you play telephone. And then the, the, the person whispers it to the next person, and he only gets to say it once, and they can't ask any questions, right? So it's built in to the game, and it's a fun game to play, right. but it's built into the game to make it difficult and to lean on assumption. What did I think I heard, I hear, heard you say? And that's nothing at all similar to what we see in the scriptures um, or the transmission or the creation of these texts. What we see is um, uh, the earliest the earliest book of the New Testament is probably the book of James written by the brother, the half-brother of Jesus. Um, and it may be written within um, single-digit years of Jesus's ascension, okay? Um, the earliest gospel um, um, written form, some have some have put within 10 years of Jesus's ascension. So this is not um, decades, but but even if it is, um, this is an incredibly close proximity to the actual events. And what what I want to point out as a difference between the telephone game is, the presence of hundreds of eyewitnesses, not only of Jesus' resurrection, that's why in the, at the end of the Gospels um, that it makes a note to say that Jesus appeared to Peter, to the apostles, and to 500 people at various times, right? And so either this is a mass hallucination event, um, which is unprecedented right. without the you know um, onset of hallucinogenic drugs or something ridiculous, right? And um, even then, I believe it would it'd be unheard of for 500 people to have the same hallucination. There you go. The Perfect. Time. That's what I'm trying to say. Thank you. Um, and so what I'm saying is w- within the writing of these documents, there, uh, there are people still alive, Mary Magdalene, first person at the tomb in the Gospel of John. They can go. And this is the reason why we write the names of these people in in 
why the authors wrote the names of these people in these books because they're saying go ask them. Yeah, if you don't, you know, we're not trying to hide. Don't anything. take my word for exactly. it. Exactly. Go ask Mary. This this is not a political agenda. This is not some myth that we're trying to write about um, um, uh, some Greek demigod, right? Um, no, go, no, go ask them. And um, this is really, really significant. It's nothing at all like the telephone game. Um, and the later on, when we get into the question of can, the canon, how those books were chosen, there's a there's a some big misunderstanding and assumptions there too. But um, yeah, these these kind of conversations with skeptics, I think, are supremely valuable. I enjoy them, and I'm not threatened by them. I don't I don't try to swing for a home run fence every time. I have these conversations. I value these men and women. I love them. I appreciate them. And uh, especially, you know, uh, I, I want to match their sincerity with my humility and and just, man, I, I that question deserves a lot of respect, like I said in the beginning. Um, but when you start with some of these objective things, I, I, I think it must cause a thinking person to at least pause right. and say, wow, that is, that is actually very unique. Um, in the landscape of history, literary history, it is unique, and it should be, and it should be recognized as such. So I, I think those are at least the, the top two objective reasons why I think we can, we can trust, or top two or three objective reasons why we can trust the Scriptures. Yeah, that's really good. And you used a word earlier that I want to circle back to. Uh, Bill, if you're listening to this, sorry um, to use that phrase. So <laughs> canon. Yeah. And so the person listening is probably wondering, they're like, okay, I understand the 4th of July just happened, but why are we talking about canons <laughs> if we're talking about the Bible? So I Only think that's... two ends in this canon, not <laughs> yeah. three. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a good segue. So um, the men of Faith Bridge throughout the summer have been able to submit questions of Got their it. own. And, and so I think um, this this next question is is a, a good one for us to topic uh, tackle because it it relates to the the issue of canon. I'll let you explain what that word means here in just a moment. Uh, canon with one in in the middle. Uh, but Sean writes in, how do we know that we have all the right books? So if I was to to paraphrase or elaborate on this question, I might say, in other words, how do we know that these other books like the Apocrypha or the Gospel of Thomas shouldn't mm. be included? Sure. And then conversely, how do we know that the four Gospels that we do have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, should be there and that we shouldn't remove one of those? Right. It's an excellent question. The word canon is uh, Greek for standard, so it's just a way of describing what um, we understand as maybe we could say the word official New Testament book versus um, not. Um, and so, yes, it, it is true that there were, in, in the Old and New Testament, lots of other contemporary books written around the same time. Um, that um, many believe were vying for a place, vying for an, an authoritative voice in either Israel or the church, right? Um, and so Dan Brown, right, is maybe the f most famous guy recently, and Bart Ehrman and others who are smart. Bart Ehrman may be moving. I, I like Bart. He's very, very smart. He's a New Testament scholar a textual critic scholar, and he, he may be moving a little bit in his faith, but um, he is smarter. Um, he's brilliant, way smarter than me, but he's smarter than some of the things he was 
trying to convince others of in the past. But yeah, because of Dan and Bart and others like them. And Dan Brown, just for anyone listening, yeah. he's the author of The Da Vinci Code. There you go. That kind of popularized some of this. That's yeah. right. And so he 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 bases his his um, fiction, and it is fiction, off of this idea that the early church was a political machine and they were building an agenda, uh, uh, sort of this, um, uh, this way of thinking to change the world. It, it wasn't based in historical fact. It wasn't based in the resurrection of Jesus or anything like that, right? But it was, it was a political machine out to do specific things and it would misinterpret or invent anything necessary to reach that end. This is essentially a Dan Brown kind of theory of ancient history or biblical history. But um, that is absolutely not the way that the canon of the Old or New Testament um, was, I don't even like to say the word created, because it, it is not the the vote of a council. It's not Red Rover on the kindergarten <laughs> field. You know, I want this guy to come over. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that at all. It's um, and, and we can see this in the writings of the early church fathers, sort of the second generation after the, the, the disciple apostles. Um, what, what happened with the canon was, I like to say it was recognized. Right. It wasn't created. The canon of the New Testament, we'll just take the New Testament. The Old Testament happened, the, it, it's very, very, very reasonable to see in Jewish writings that the Old Testament canon, the way that we understand the 39 books of the Old Testament, um, was recognized as those 39 books, uh, official authoritative books of the Old Testament by the time of Jesus, probably long before. Um, there are some recent arguments that want to see that pushed a little later, but um, into the New Testament era. But I, I don't think that that is true. I think that by the by the 400, 380 so silent years after the book of Malachi and Nehemiah and Ezra were writing in the construction of the second temple, um, into the time of John the Baptist's ministry in the early Gospels, um, that is um, the time when that authoritative Old Testament was recognized, not created, but recognized. Now, the New Testament, a lot of people want to point to Constantine, 325, the Council of Nicaea, or some of the other councils of Constantinople or whatever, um, as a time when they got together and voted. What what book do you like? And it was a majority, but all of that is just purely fiction. Um, the canon, the standard of the New Testament was recognized as the New Testament was being written based on three essential criteria. One of them was the books were written by someone with apostolic authority, someone um, as an apostle disciple of Jesus or directly linked to a disciple or apostle of Jesus, Paul being, of course, uh, an an added apostle to Jesus, um, as we see in the book of Acts, etc. So yeah, the gospel of Mark is related to Peter. It's essentially Peter's gospel. The gospel of Luke and Acts are related to Paul. He and Luke was a follower of Paul. James and Jude were the half-brothers of Jesus. Um, Hebrews, um, we don't know who technically the author of Hebrews is. A lot of people think it's Paul. Paul's a great answer. Or, or someone like Barnabas or Apollos, who is closely related to an apostle. Um, the rest of them are written by John, Matthew, these um, Peter, these lead 
disciples of Jesus. That was the number one, I wouldn't even say a test or a criteria, but it was the number one point of, of interest. Were these books written by someone related to or closely connected to a follow, a, a, an original follower of Jesus, right? Which is why later written, um, when someone wanted to write an alternative gospel, they put a name on it like Thomas, like Peter. Um, and so the Gospel of Thomas wasn't written, um, best we know, at the time that the four Gospels were written that we have in the New Testament. It was written later and attached, it wasn't written by Thomas, was attached the name of Thomas. He because, was dead by the time absolutely. it was written. Um, they, they attached the name of Thomas because they wanted it to be connected to uh, an apostle because that was, again, a high value. The second one... It was um, like... Uh, Second and third century name dropping. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. We, <laughs> to we try to validate yeah. my existence, I'm going to name drop this yeah. important person. We, right? we have a name for it. It's called pseudepigrapha. So um, in, in Greek, so um, written, written afterwards, written second handedly, but with a name attached that connects it to someone else. Right. Um, so um, even in the Old Testament, you have. Uh, um, first and second Enoch, supposed to be written by Enoch, right? But written generations right. later, right? But attach that name for the sake of trying to gain authority. Um, so that first one is apostolicity, we would say, connected to an apostle. The second one is orthodoxy. We want to make sure, again, and this is where a lot of people like Dan Brown would say, well, this is a political agenda. Right. Um, no. The this ones is... that say what we wanted to say, we'll include those. Exactly. Exactly. It's quite the opposite, actually. It was which ones clearly represent the teaching of Jesus. The teaching of Jesus is, and it was recorded during his lifetime, um, probably written, you know, not just oral um, tradition, but written down during his lifetime and, um, and immediately after, for sure. And so this is not a test of orthodoxy as of what do we want to present, but does this line up with Jesus? And the, the third one is really the most important one, and that was the recognition of the living authority of the inspired word of the Holy, by the Holy Spirit. Because there were books, like the Gospel of John, um, that were very, very clearly transforming cities and communities. People were um, coming to faith in Jesus in dramatic ways. Um, even the miraculous things were happening when these books were trans emitted, copied, and spread out in the ancient Near East world, the Mediterranean, um, and th the church recognized this. This was probably the most important factor of the recognition of the canon was there were books that were very, very clearly imbibed with the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, and those that were not. Um, and the ones that are not, like the Shepherd of Hermas or the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, whatever, um, there's, there's lots of them in the New Testament time. They're, they're not necessarily heterodox. They're not necessarily unorthodox, but they are, and I've read many of them, not all of them, they are clearly different than the New Testament. Even, even an unbeliever could read the two, read the Gospel of John versus the Gospel of Thomas, and you can see a marked difference in the content, in the spirit of the two. Um, 
And that's what was recognized by the, by the early church. So the canon wasn't created, it wasn't voted on. By 325, the Council of Nicaea with Constantinople, excuse me, with Constantine, um, the canon was, had been recognized for probably 150, 175, 200 years by that time. And so um, it, it wasn't created, it wasn't voted on. It was simply recognized according to apostolicity and orthodoxy. And we can see evidence of these early collections. Like you can see all of Paul's letters being passed on in a manuscript tradition far be before the Council of Nicaea. Correct. And we have early church fathers that are writing and listing the books of the New Testament. And like the Moratorium Canon uh, um, is one of the most famous list, and it includes all the 27 books that we know now. They're, they're linked together, some of them, like the, the, uh, the, the letters of John, he will say, right? Uh, which includes maybe 1st, 2nd, 3rd, Revelation, and the Gospel. He, he'll include those. Um, um, but he'll also, also say the 13 letters of Paul. So we have all of these 13, right, etc. So we have those. We have um, many, many references in the early church fathers, again, this is the second generation of church leaders um, that quote these books, um, that reference them and reference their authority, um, and seem to be, in, at the very, very onset of this, recognizing an official canon of authoritative scripture. Which, just as a, a quick callback to what we were talking about earlier, you were talking about New Testament evidence, or the manuscript evidence of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. um, I'm believe that if we can catalog all the quotes that we have in the extant manuscripts of the church fathers there you go. and we can it's it's either a complete new testament or it's a near complete new testament just quoting the fathers correct just only adds more to the yes. manuscript I, in my research it's nearly complete not yeah. perfectly complete but yeah a vast majority right. of all of the new testament is quoted by the church fathers yes and they're clearly quoting those documents uh in a different way. They're clearly treating those documents as early as the second generation of Christians as, as special and unique. Yes. And the, sec the second question you, the listener may be answering is, well, well, do they quote the other documents? And the answer is yes, but not nearly as much. The, the quotes of these other documents that I mentioned, the Shepherd of Hermas, the Gospel of Thomas, or these other, are are on the order of like 50 to 1 kind right. of references. So they, they are referenced as best we know, um, but it, it is dramatically different in the number of references. Right. Yes. The analogy that comes to my mind is probably a good segue to our next question. Um, we can do the same thing with the New Testament or a similar thing to, of the New Testament to the Old Testament. We can't recreate the whole, entire Old Testament, but... Uh, I if I'm wrong, or uh, I believe every Old Testament book except for Esther is quoted at some point in the New Testament. And so as opposed to, I think Jude has a vague reference to An maybe apocryphal book. E yeah. Enoch, um, yeah, maybe right. Paul has one or two, but that's it. Correct. And even, you know, again, when those quotes are brought up, like, you see in the New Testament these formulas like it is written or yep. the Holy Spirit said or the Holy Spirit said through David, right? When the mm -hmm. New Testament authors are quoting Old Testament inspired scripture versus the couple of times they reference these apocryphal works. Correct. They, I, I will teach my students and disciple men in this way that um, the New Testament references the Old Testament in at least three ways. One of them is a quotation. Like you said, it is written. 
The second one would be a reference without the, the formula it is written. It just introduces a reference. And the third one, the most notoriously difficult, is an allusion with an right. A, an allusion. I allude to a text without quoting it, um, you know, um, explicitly or referencing it explicitly. There's an illusion. And so we can count the quotations and there are lots of them. Um, in my research, Isaiah and the Psalms are the most quoted and referenced books of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Um, but when it comes to references, more implicit references and the illusions, then we're getting much, much wider coverage of the uh, Old Testament. Yeah. And um, there are um, most, if not all but one or two of the Old Testament books um, referenced or alluded to or quoted in the New Testament. Yes. Mm -hmm. So the reason why I say maybe that's a good segue is because our, our next uh, listener submitted question yeah. has to do with the let, relationship. Let me, let, me, let me conclude the first one with this statement that I wanted to make sure we understood. Ah, okay. and, and it's just a conclusion, then we can move on. Sorry. The, the process of official canonization uh, of the New Testament did not grant biblical books their authority. It was the opposite. The authority of the biblical books was recognized in the official canon. Right. It's really important to understand that. Um, because the modern popular assumption, because of Dan Brown and others, or just skepticism, is that the canonization process granted these biblical books their authority. Right. But it was the opposite, in fact. Their inherent authority by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was recognized in the official canon. Right. That's important. Go ahead. Uh, in Protestant lingo, sola scriptura, that scriptures are our final authority. There you go. Uh, the church submits to the scripture, not the mm -hmm. other way around. There you go. Um, so our second question has to do with um, how the Old Testament relates to the New. So I'll read it verbatim, and then I'll, I'll kind of wrap up what I, I think is the essential question. So Drew writes in, I'm continually confused by the practice of taking items from the Old Testament that is the old law, then tying it to the New Testament when it fits a point trying to be made. However, there is a lot in the Old Testament that is not followed or really discussed much that we really don't talk about much as Christians. I had a Jewish coworker ask, how do you know which Old Testament items need to be followed and which ones don't? I knew a couple of passages in the Sermon on the Mount, um, but still thought it was a pretty good question. So, Scott, we read things like the Ten Commandments, you know, do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery, and we think, yeah, those are probably pretty good things that we should still <laughs> obey today, right? Yeah. But then we read other things in the Old Testament. Uh, we read about food laws, cleanliness laws, you know, sacrifices that had to be made at the temple. And I don't see uh, many, if any, Christians, you know, arguing that we should be uh, obeying those, right? Um, mm. So, but from a practical perspective, as, as we're reading um, the Bible, as we're reading the Old Testament, how do we parse through if this is even the best way of phrasing the question, um, feel free to rephrase it, but how do we parse through what in the Old Testament applies to Christians uh, today and what doesn't? Or maybe a better way of phrasing the question is how should Christians relate to the Old Testament? Right. And I, th I think it may be more precise to say the Mosaic Law, right? Is that what we're mostly talking about? Because this is where food laws, sacrifices, etc., the moral code, the sundry laws come from the Mosaic Law. We're not talking about circumcision with Abrahamic covenant. We're not talking about um, um, th these other covenants primarily, but we're talking about the Mosaic Covenant. And so how does the, the believer in Jesus, the New Testament Christian, 
relate to the Mosaic law? Maybe more precise answer. Right. It may not be all of his question, but I think I understand it is mostly that. Um, I would I would answer that question by answering two even more specific questions, and that would be this. What was the original purpose of the Mosaic law first? And second, what was Jesus's relationship to the Mosaic law in his own words and um, what the New Testament says about that? So first, um, the Mosaic law, what was the original purpose of the Mosaic law? Um, there are um, many good Jewish writers um, I'm, I'm reading some now that are um, believers in Jesus, Yeshua, um, that have made an incredibly powerful argument that um, the goal of the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, written largely by Moses, um, were not to lead us to the law, which is what it ends with, right? Um, the second half of Exodus all the way through the end of Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law were not to lead us to the law, but were to lead us through the law to Messiah. For instance, why does the law that says don't do all these things then have a very, 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 very long list of how you make up for the things that you fail at, Right. right? There's a sacrificial system to cover over our sins included in the law. So the law um, presupposes law-breaking. Then when we get to the New Testament, we get even more information that the law was given so that sin may increase. The the law was our tutor. That that would be Romans 5. Uh, Galatians 3 says that law was our tutor to lead us to Jesus, Um, that the law was a shadow of the things that were to come, and the substance is Christ. Is uh, was what Paul would say. The the law is explained. By the way, that's the only um, Bible that the early church has. Right as the New Testament is being written is the Old Testament. So they're reading and trying to understand the the point of all these things. As was Jesus um, interacting with the Pharisees and his disciples, questioning these things. Um, so the original purpose of the Mosaic Law was not to save a person, um, to justify a person. Um, it was to reveal the character of God and to reveal what holiness looked like and to make a person dependent on a blood sacrifice to keep their fellowship with God intact, which led them perfectly to the final sacrifice in Messiah. Now, that was the original purpose of the law. What is Jesus's relationship to the law? Well, he would say um, himself in Matthew 5 that I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Not, not one jot or tittle. Those are the smallest little flicks of a pen in Hebrew or Greek um, will, will disappear um, but, or, or be abolished. But I have come to perfectly fulfill the law. And then Hebrews would say that um, the, the old covenant was completed and the high priest sat down um, at the establishment of a new covenant, which is, of course, from Ezekiel and Jeremiah. The new covenant, which is the Holy Spirit in our hearts, grace. Um, as a free gift, including us in the family of God. Um, This was the point. The Old Testament uh, law, the Mosaic law, was to lead us to the Messiah. The Messiah was the revealer of the new covenant, which is a wholly different thing, Um, and a a covenant of grace and forgiveness um, and inclusion, right? And so um, what parts of the Old Testament are still applicable to the New Testament believer? Well, the, um, 
um, it's difficult because much of the of the Mosaic law depends on the priesthood, the sacrificial system, and the temple, and we don't have any of those right now. Um, and so we can't make sacrifices. Um, even Jews can't make sacrifices since AD 70 and when the temple was destroyed by Titus. Um, so um, that, that's difficult. And then we have the book of Acts, chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council. Um, this is before the temple was destroyed, so sacrifices were still happening then. But the question was, what, did the, what do the churches have to do? Do they have to fully become Jews? They have to be circumcised? They have to follow food laws? They have to do all these things? And the answer was no, they don't. What they need to do is um, be careful of food sacrifice to idols, and be careful not to cause um, any disruption in the in, in the inclusion of Jews and Gentiles in the church in other offensive ways. That was it. They don't have to follow food laws. They don't have to be circumcised. Um, so Acts chapter 15 of the Jerusalem Council is a big answer to our question. Um, but the other two, what was the original purpose of the law? And what was Jesus' relationship to the law is also important. So um, I don't believe it's important for a person to keep food loss because Jesus doesn't rein, reinvent or, or re, uh, reorient, restate, yeah. restate very perfect, or reorient us to that. He does to many of the Ten Commandments, murder, honor your father and your mother, etc. He doesn't do so for the Sabbath, which is interesting. Um, he, he says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, and the Sabbath was given for men, not men for the Sabbath. And again, the Sabbath is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant, according to Exodus 31. So because Jesus is interacting so violently many times with the Pharisees who are disciples of Moses, therefore the Mosaic Covenant, that's why the Sabbath is so important to them, because it's the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. And breaking of the Sabbath is why Jesus gets in so much trouble in the Gospels. Um, and so that the Sabbath becomes a point of tension and teaching for Jesus. And what he never says is that the Sabbath is something for my followers to keep like the Pharisees kept it, right? Um, but he did, he did restate many of the others. Hey, don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't commit adultery in your mind. Don't be angry. Don't kill. Um, so he, he restates some of these and then tunes them upward even more hard. Like you can do these things in your heart and in your mind. Um, and so those are the relevant ones for New Testament believers, the ones that Jesus restates. But I would, I would not, um, disciple a man, um, to keep the food law um, or to to be circumcised in the flesh as a way of of honoring God or obeying God in the New Testament era. Um, it is not uh, illegal to do so, but it also does not um, make God like you or love you more if you do. And so um, I, I would say that the most important practices for the New Testament disciple and believer in Jesus are those that Jesus himself and Paul and the rest of the New Testament suggest. And that is obedience to all of the commands of Jesus. So when Jesus says, if you love me in John 14, you'll obey my commands. Um, there is no contextual reason for us to understand that my commands there means the Mosaic law. Right. It means the one that he mentioned in chapter 13, which is to love one another yeah. and the ones like that. Yeah. So um, I think the New Testament believer is free um, from the, the demands of the Mosaic law 
um, in almost every sense, except for the ones that sort of um, ride high above the culture and reflect the character of God and morality and the ones that Jesus restates. Yeah, no, that's very helpful. So to kind of summarize just a couple of the points that I got from it, number one, just a kind of quick and dirty litmus test is to go to the New Testament. Um, why? Because of everything we've been talking about for the last however long, right? Yeah. That these are the authoritative documents of, of the church. So what did Jesus say? What did the apostles say? And where we see them restating, uh, you know, it's not only the Ten Commandments that talks about not murdering and not right. stealing, right? Um, so we can feel confident with that. But the same, secondly, as we read our New Testament, we will see within the New Testament the believers wrestling with this and coming to conclusion yes. that Jesus came to fulfill the law, that Gentiles don't have to be circumcised and, and keep the food laws, that um, the 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 Old Testament sacrifices were uh, shadows of the greater sacrifice that has now come in Christ. Acts, the book of Acts is like a real-time um, laboratory for understanding that. These New Testament believers, Jews and mostly Jews in the beginning, and then Gentiles, how are they supposed to relate to the Mosaic law? It's real-time. Yeah. Um, second thing that came to my mind, to borrow a phrase from another FaithBridge uh, favorite, Steve Carter, uh, once again, our conversation is returning back to the thing beneath the thing, you know? <laughs> so we look at the Old Testament law, we look at the Ten Commandments, but really all that was, as you mentioned, is codifying the character of God. So That's why right. do we not murder? Well, because the Ten Commandments says to. Yes, but a deeper level is because it violates the character of God. Exactly. That God is a life giver. And part, of the, part of the purpose of the Mosaic Law was to reveal the character of God. Yeah. And so, and then we can take principles like with the food laws and, and some of these other cleanliness laws. The principle is be holy for As I am I, holy. And that's what I was just about to say is the most repeated, one of the most repeated phrases in the book of Leviticus, be holy for I am holy. And this is why I want you to do all these things. I want you to understand what holiness is and how impossible it is for you to be it. Right. Absolutely. And so that's why the law was added, so that sin may increase. And Paul would say, I didn't know what coveting was until the law told me not to covet. And then when it told me not to covet, I coveted everything. And that leads right. me to the need for a Savior. Right. Leads me to Messiah. Just, just makes me think of, uh, you know, as I was leaving here, my kids were fighting over toys. And literally, my daughter just wanted whatever toy my son had. And when he would graciously let her have that one, and he would grab another one. Now all of a sudden she was done with the first exactly. toy and wanted the second no, one, right? It's it. like, we want what we have, what we can't have, it's the, the human condition. And then I think the third thing that came to my mind as you were sharing is um, the Bible is not a reference book. It's it's not a dictionary where we, we just look up. Right, or a know, rule book even ID, uh, yeah. um, um, as a priority. Right, Yeah. it's a story. So the Mosaic law, was given to a specific people in a specific time in a specific context. Yeah, um, and that's what's interesting. You talked about the Torah, right? Like Mace, when's the last time you shaved your face? Because uh, that's you can't shave <laughs> the sides of your beard. Right. Mosaic law, right? right, right I right. mean, you can't wear two kinds of fabric at the same time. I, I think you're probably wearing a blend of fabric in your <laughs> yeah. shirt. I mean, that's against right. the law. So again, which parts of the law should should we follow? Because the New Testament says, if you break one part of the law, then you're guilty of the whole. Mm -hmm. And so these are, are not just practically impossible, they are not um, ever mentioned in the New Testament by Jesus or the apostles right. as continuing. That's why Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the holy requirement of the law in me. And he's the only one who could do it. Right. And that's what's interesting, you know, the Torah, 
right? Instruction, the law. You know, when, when a Jew said the Torah, instruction, the law, they didn't just mean the Old Testament, you know, the, or the, the Ten Commandments. No. They also mean the story of creation, the story That's of right. Abraham, right? The covenants, and so hundreds he, and hundreds of commandments. Even these yeah. laws are weaved within a story. Correct. Right? And so to... In a to context. learn the story, learn yeah. learn the context, and that's that's probably a good segue to the last question that I, I just wanted to throw out. Okay, if, if someone's reading this and or listening to this, and um, you know, feels compelled to take the Bible seriously, <laughs> um, and but isn't sure where to start, you know, so I'm listening, and I can honestly say I really haven't ever read the Bible. Like, yeah, I know that the Ten Commandments are a thing. I've never actually read them myself, much less the context that they're in. Right. Um, so if I'm a Bible noob, uh, at least when it comes to sure. uh, reading it for myself, just, you know, quick 30-second, a minute, what would be your just encouragement? Well, the, Bi- the Bible's not like, um, you know, a Lee Child, Jack Reacher novel. So you don't, you don't start in the beginning necessarily, right? And so, I, I yeah, it... I would direct people. You you don't you don't start in Genesis one, if you're new to the to you can, um, of course you can. You can start anywhere actually, but I I always tell people to start in one of the Gospels. If you have never read this the Bible before, turn to the New Testament, and start with either the the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Just pick one. Um, John is one of my favorites, but Matthew's my favorite. And Luke is my favorite, and Mark is my favorite too. So, um, but you pick one of those and start with the person of Jesus. Um, after that, I would say pick pick another of the four gospels and read that. Um, and then maybe read the book of Acts, and maybe read some of Paul's letters, and then go to the Old Testament or read the Psalms or read the uh, book of Genesis, which is great, whatever. Um, but that's where I would encourage you to read. Start with Jesus. He's the center of the story. You're right. It's a, it's a unified story from beginning to end. The, um, the beginning of the book tells us how we were created in the presence of God and how sin disrupted the presence of God, and we were evicted from the presence of God. The end of the story in the book of Revelation at the very last two chapters is the presence of God coming back permanently and us re-entering the presence of God forever. So the whole middle of the story is how do we get back into the presence of God and who helps us because it's impossible for us to do on our own. That's why the whole middle of the book is the search for the one to get us back into the presence of God, which is Jesus, the eternal son of God, the Messiah. So if you start with him in a gospel, hearing his very words and watching him, um, you get the key to the whole thing, right. and then when you understand that key, it helps you understand the rest. Right. That's where Absolutely. I would start. Well, I am, uh, in one sense, grieving that our time is coming to an end, but on the other hand, uh, thankful that um, anyone listening to this that wants to to hear more will get the opportunity in just a couple weeks as we kick off our fall men's ministry season that we're calling Rise Up. And our kickoff event is going to be Shop Talk on September 6th. And uh, the men get the pleasure of hearing you and, <laughs> I'm and seeing you in person I'm excited uh, the next to be go there. around. Thanks so much. Yeah. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. And men, thank you for joining us for this episode of the Faith Bridge Men podcast as we continue our summer FAQ series. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with others and rate and subscribe to the podcast so we can get the good news out to more men. And then we will see you in a few weeks at Shop Talk to kick off our fall men's ministry season. Rise up.